Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, November the 16th, 2018. This is episode 2328. And as it is Friday, 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 and I don't have the voice for it after last week with the workshop. I'm still recovering a little bit. Not as bad as I've been some years, though, huh? Guys, this week I kind of pulled it off okay. Um, but... Um, we are going to have the expert counsel Q&A show. i got a really diverse set of questions for you uh, today. Remember, if you want to uh, send a question in for the expert counsel member, please don't call it into the think line. Please don't. Uh, occasionally I get one and I do forward it, but we have a procedure for this that makes it more likely that as soon as your question gets to me, it will get to the appropriate counsel member, and that makes it more likely that it will get answered in a timely manner. The procedure. Uh, you email me with TSPC expert in the subject line. TSPC expert in the subject line. You send an email to Jack of the Survival Podcast com. You say, Jack, I have a question for expert council member. Fill in the blank. My question is: ask question in one sentence, and then hit enter a couple times. The details are. If you do that, there is a very, very high probability that you will get past my screening and get to the expert council member. Assuming the expert council member is not on the pikers list, meaning they're not getting their council questions answered in a timely manner, there is an extremely high probability that your question will come back within a week or two and be on a show just like this. And you can get access to this group of people that I think are some of the most astute people in the world of preparedness, liberty, self-sufficiency, off-grid technology, you name it, that is available anywhere in the world. If you just follow that procedure and let me help you help me help you, yeah, that's it, yeah, help me help you help me help you, however it goes, I will do everything I can to get you an answer. Here's what we got going on today. One, we have an update on California's fires, a little bit of word about CAC as well in there, uh, but Nicole Sauce has family on the ground out there, so Nicole has an update for us on that. Then we have the legal implications and considerations with homemade guns from the law enforcement officer, former law enforcement officer, I should say, Dan Oman, who now spends his time producing grass-fed beef, which I think maybe makes him a little happier than his days as a cop, um, buying a business based on EBITDA, which, well, what is EBITDA? If you don't know, John Pugliano will tell you. Uh, we'll be talking about that in just a bit. Plants for truly cold very cold environments. Ben Falk knows a little bit about the cold up there in Zone 4. Dealing with kidney stones and preventing them naturally from old dock bones. When not to narrow focus niche with your blog. Nicole Sauce bookending that for us. And how to go from introvert to extrovert. For me, myself, and I, Jack. We will get right into it today. We have nothing else in the housekeeping segment for you guys today. Straight on in we go with an update on California's fires from Nicole Sauce. Nicole, take it away. Hey, TSP, Nicole Sauce here with something a little bit different. This morning I got up and I read that the government of California is calling to ease logging restrictions in California. Well, no shit, dude. We've only been calling for that the whole time. We've only explained for years what happens if you do not properly manage your forests. If the trees grow so closely together that when there is a fire, the deer get caught by their antlers in between trees and die a horrible death. Unlike a lot of disasters that I have helped with over the past few years after coming into the TSP community, the wildfires in California 
have hit close to home. You see, Paradise, California is one of the towns that burned, and it is also where some of my family lives. I remember heading out there as a kid, you know, to, to visit aunts and uncles on the way home from family camping gatherings, hanging out with my aunt, hanging out with my cousins, and all of them worked and lived in that area and now it's gone. It's completely gone. A whole town has burned. It is not salvageable. And, you know, people have no homes to come home to. And what's even more scary in a situation like that, like you get out with your life, they also don't have jobs. I mean, unless they work for a company that just had a branch there that can relocate them somewhere else, they don't have the jobs to work to earn the money through the rebuilding process. Lana and Dave made it out of the fire safe but their homes did not make it. That was the message I got while I was at Jack's workshop. And I was thousands of miles away, thousands of miles in the middle of a workshop, right? Like, what can you do? You feel pretty helpless in a situation like that. But what I know is that my my cousin and her husband got out with their lives with four chickens and their two dogs and her family her mom and dad happened to be out of town on vacation and they're, they're, you know, bordering on elderly. So they didn't have to go through that horrendous inferno flight experience that my cousin did. But my cousin who teaches disaster preparedness, which is pretty interesting, had to try multiple routes to get out of town because it ain't easy to get out of paradise when it's on fire, right? Paradise is a fairly small town. There aren't a lot of routes into and out of it. So if one is impassable, it's hard to figure out where to go. And Jack talks to us all the time about what, you know, preparing for what's likely rather than the zombie apocalypse. And I just have to say this, and I told her this this morning, I am so proud of my cousin Lana for surviving because it's she and her family that made that happen. They didn't wait for somebody else to save them. They made it happen. And after chatting with her, I thought it would be interesting to share what was in place that helped them survive this fire. Number one is a plan. She knew what to grab on the way out. And you know that binder that Jack talks about? Yeah, think about how great it would be if you were in a wildfire infected area and you knew the binder was in the car so you didn't have to dig for your passport in the safe. That means you can spend time doing something like getting your dogs out because you can always get another passport, right? Especially if you have another photo ID offsite somewhere else that's quote unquote valid. But you can always get those things built back, especially if you have data in your binder in your car that you're using to get out of there. Like imagine the freedom you feel. Uh, she had gas in her car. Do you ever like come home on empty and you're like, eh, I just don't feel like fueling up at the gas station. You know, this, this is where the half tank of gas rule is super helpful. If you always have half a tank of gas, like minimum in your car. And of course, if you have fuel stored, like we've been taught to, you can get out and guess what? You don't have to wait in line at a gas station that may or may not have gas in it when everybody does a run on it in a disaster when you're getting out of town. So having gas in your car, it's a really small thing. It's really easy to do. You're going to buy the gas anyway. Why not keep it at at least half a tank? And why not have a few vessels with gas in it so that you're ready if something happens? Now, 
I'm going to say this, like depending on what you're storing your gas in, I'm not sure I'd throw those tanks into the back of my truck on the way out of town while things are on fire. Like I would personally not put plastic gas tanks in the back of my truck because, uh, you know, if stuff is raining on your car while you're getting out and then those catch on fire, that's going to be a disaster, right? But having them so you can fill your tank on the way out, like for me, that gets me four or 500 miles away, which is hopefully far enough away to figure out enough, you know, how to get myself and my family and my animals to safety. Number three, geographical knowledge. And this is something I have to say, I'm a little weak on this in my own area. Like I know my area really well, but like uh, some alternative routes to where I need to go if I need to go. I need to think about that a lot more. So sometimes the route you need to take is blocked. And if it's blocked by a wall of fire, you're screwed. So spend some time looking at alternative routes. My cousin Lana spent had to try four different ways to get out of town. And every time they tried, it was, it was blocked. And then they talked to the, like the emergency firefighter guys and they'd say, okay, you know, try this other one. And they knew what the other one, like what that meant. If you have to waste time when they're telling you try route 66 and you don't know where that is or what that's called, that's precious moments that leave you in a town that needs to evacuate and the longer you stay in a town that needs to evacuate, the more likely it is you're going to die a horrible death. And you don't want to die a horrible death. Number four, she had a place to land. She knew where to go. Her sister has a ranch. It's not too far away, but it's far enough away to be out of the affected area. So she didn't need to waste time thinking, like, which relative am I going to go to or figuring out housing. And if you don't have a sister with a ranch with the ideal bug out location, like landing place, Find close friends who agree to let you land there if you ever have to. And then that gives you a way to think in advance how to find an alternative route. In fact, after this, I'm updating my location list because I did it like two years ago. And some things have changed. And I need to make sure I can still land where I was planning to land. And I need to think about what alternative routes to get there, how to get them a message if I'm coming. Because, you know, at some point... If things are on fire and you need to leave, who's going to spend time on the phone calling saying I'm coming? So you need to go somewhere where if you just show up, they're not going to be like, why the hell are you here? Right. Having a place to land is key. If you don't have family, find friends. If you don't have friends, well, get off your ass and make some friends, man. And. Yes. Number five, they had some bug out things in place like food and water that they could grab, money that they could grab on the way out. Um, you know, all of those things we talk about the bug out, but that's when you grab the bug out bag. But here's something else. And this is something a lot of people don't think it's like the evacuation bag or the evacuation plan. Right. If I have to evacuate, I have three things that really matter to me from my family. One of them's a handmade necklace that my grandfather made for my grandmother because he loved her very much. And he made it out of an opal and some diamonds from his mother's ring. This thing is worth like four or five hundred dollars. It's not worth a lot of money, but to me, it's priceless. And so I have it along with a few other things, two other things, all in one place in my safe unless I'm wearing it. And if I ever have to leave and I have time to get into my safe, that comes with me. That's the only thing I need to grab. The photos can burn, you know, the, the family furniture can burn, all of that other stuff can burn. But like, I've thought these three small things 
are what I want to take with me. And you know what? When you lose everything and you still have the necklace that your grandfather made for your grandmother with your great grandmother's diamonds in it, you're going to like treasure it even more. So think about having not only a bug out bag, but some sort of what I call an evacuation bag, which is just access to some basic stuff. In fact, oddly enough, mine is stored with my passport so that I can get out with some ID <laughs> as well as that. Okay. And then number six, and number six should have been number one, but sometimes when you land on the final thing, people remember it more. This one is the most important thing. Leave. Please, for the love of God, get out. Go. When you think it might be time to go, and do not wait for the evacuation call. Just get the hell out, right? Get safe. Get out regroup and people who waited too long in paradise didn't make it out of paradise. They died of smoke inhalation, which sounds horrendous. It kind of sounds like suffocating to me or they burned alive, which sounds worse than suffocation. Neither one of those sound very pleasant. And if they had gotten out sooner rather than later, they would have been better now. And, and I know the winds changed quickly and that happened quickly, but you know, surrounded by fire, there are some signs, right? So I don't care if you're going to lose your job because you evacuate before the evacuation call is called. You can always find another job, but you can't find another you. And I mean, I'm sure you're important to yourself, but you're important to your family and your friends. And today when I was talking with Lana, she she told me, you know, I, I, I teach wellness and disaster preparedness as, as a job. And she said, you know, so that helped her know what she had to have in place. She said, you know, that piece I teach on how adrenaline impacts you, I understand it so much better now. So here she is, she's lost everything. And she's already thinking like, when I do get to go back to work, this is how I'm going to be able to explain it better to people so that more people are prepared. And that's why I love my cousin. And, um, I'm just, Really thankful they made it out. So if you want to help with the wildfires, and usually I talk to you guys about how to find me. I don't care. If you want to help with the wildfires, go out and find some of these GoFundMe campaigns that are starting for people who just lost everything. And they're navigating insurance claims, and they don't have a job. Go out. Give something to somebody directly. Don't give it to the Red Cross. The Red Cross isn't going to use it there. And... It just support the people like you can. And if you are in California motivated to try to help with some of the relief, CAC team has res- res- um, responded to two hurricanes, and they're pretty much resource tapped out. So they're not going to be able to respond to this one, but they do have something for you. They've developed a resources section on their website, CACteam.com that gives you tools you need to self-organize. And if you do decide to self-organize, you can hop on Zello, get on the channel, and they will give you lots of advice and the kind of you know friendly support that you may need as you put something together on your own. I encourage you to tap into that resource if you're sitting in California going, it's time for me to help these guys rebuild. Anyway, guys, go out, make it a great week. Um. Just a little follow-up with a little bit of CAC stuff there at the end. So somebody asked me today on the blog, why isn't CAC responding to the fires in California? Um, and, and Texas is the lowest form of communications, and I don't want to put any thoughts in this person's head or speak for them out of turn or anything. 
But I kind of read it like, well, what the hell? Why aren't you doing something? And what I responded to with that is, one, listen to today's show um, so you can hear from Nicole here and, and what we can do. And, but the other thing is organizations need to know what organizations do well and where organizations can be of assistance. And the reality is the way things are going out there, an organization that is designed to do what CAC is designed to do, which is be fast, agile, and put stuff into people's hands when they can't get anything, is really not what's needed. And so what CAC is doing in the middle of this disaster is kind of stepping back, saying, hey, there's some stuff we can do to help people on the ground uh, with logistics and things like that. But this is really not our place. And unlike the Red Cross, we're not going, hey, give us money, give us money, right? And on another note, I say we and us a lot of times when I talk about CAC. And I say that because CAC is my creation. I conceived of it. I developed the concept. I put people in charge of actually turning it into what it is today. And then I got the hell out of the way. And I do not have a place on the board. Um, I don't want a place on the board. I don't have any say in what CAC does. I am occasionally asked for my advice, and I give it, and, and that is all. And I promote this organization as something that I kind of gave birth to, but the child grew up, and the child has its own life, and now I am the, the proud father that sits back and let that, lets that child li live his life. And says, I am proud of my son, and for these things, my son does a good job. So that's, that's where I'm at with this. So when I say we... I, if you like, well, I think they should be doing this or whatever, talk to the organization itself. Um, I refuse, actually, to intervene, to put my foot down, to demand anything of people who basically work for free to do the great work that CAC does. And CAC will not claim to be able to do things that it cannot do, and it will not get involved in places where it will squander its resources Uh, which I think in California would be what they would do right now. They're kind of like, they did two huge responses. And they made good on the promise to put the majority of what was donated to the ground and get help to people. And they're kind of now in, let's, let's build back up and get ready for the next thing that we can make a difference in. So there's that. Uh, next I have a question for homemade guns for Dan Omen, and I'm going to have some definite fill-in on this one. Howdy folks, today I have a question from Jacob in regards to quote, homemade guns. Jacob wants to know, how do you feel about quote, homemade guns such as Poly 80 Glock frames or AKs built from a folded receiver blank in a parts kit? What would you suggest for someone considering carrying a concealed carry pistol made on an 80% lower or using such a gun for self-defense? Let me preface answering this by saying I am not a gun expert. I like firearms and I enjoy target shooting, but Jack is way more of an expert in this area. So Jack, feel free to jump in on this one by all means. That said, I think the homemade guns are really cool. I think they're a really neat project to work on. It's a really cool DIY. It would be especially neat for a father and son to work on building one together and have it be a gift to give to the son upon its completion and, of course, when he's old enough. And that, I think, would be a really good story for a granddaddy's gun club ceremony. As for an everyday carry self-defense weapon, I personally would prefer something factory-made like a Glock. I know how Jack feels about Glocks, and I totally agree with him about the feel of them. They aren't the most ergonomic handgun in the world, 
and like Jack, I much prefer the 1911 for sporting purposes. But there is a reason most law enforcement agencies in the U.S. are using Glocks, and it's just because they are reliable, even in the worst of conditions. Though I don't recommend at all neglecting to clean or care for your firearm, but the Glock is designed to function even when their operator has not properly taken care of it. I had over 10,000 rounds through my department issue Glock 22, and I didn't start having any failures until around 8,000 rounds. I was using old training magazines during an advanced firearm course, and the springs in the magazines were really old and weak and not feeding properly. Once I replaced the magazines, I never had another issue at all, any kind of failure to feeds, anything like that. There are plenty of very reliable handguns on the market, but you really can't go wrong with a Glock. If I'm carrying for self-defense purposes, I want to be 100% confident that my gun is going to work when I need it. I looked at the cost of building out one of these Glock clones in a DIY project to see if there was any cost savings involved. And for the Poly 80 lower kit, which is what Jacob was asking about here, the kit itself for the lower is 160 bucks. And then if you add in the slide, that's about 325 bucks for this one brand. And the barrels start at 165 Right there, we're at 650 and that doesn't even include magazines. You can get used Glocks anywhere between $350 to $400. You can check out aimsurplus.com and some other websites like that for used Glocks. And a new one can be anywhere between $500 to $600, depending on which model you're looking at. So there really isn't a price benefit for building your own. It's really about having the satisfaction of building your own gun as a hobby and, of course, developing a skill and something, again, you can do with, say, your son. I admit I've never built one of these homemade guns, nor have I ever fired one. It could be that they are perfectly reliable and there's just nothing wrong with them. I, I just don't know from personal experience. But if you are going to carry one for self-defense, I highly recommend you put at least 500 rounds through it before relying on it as your primary carry weapon and make sure that it performs to your standards. Okay, so a few things here. Number one, the Glock thing. Um, Glocks are very reliable. Uh, I don't doubt that. 1911s are very reliable. There was, you know, at one time through the all the various permutations of the 1911, there was a, a metallurgy change, and there were some particular guns that came out initially where things like, you know, stainless started being used kind of for the first time and all, and, and they had some problems. The 1911 is not an unreliable gun. It does not a jam them. I don't know where this crap comes from other than, Glock ego guys. I don't. I have this running joke that like, if you ask a 1911 guy about his gun, he'll tell you why he carries a 1911 or whatever else he feels like carrying that day. Um, if you ask a Glock guy about a Glock, he'll tell you why you should carry a Glock. And, and I just find it is an overstatement. Now, are Glocks more forgiving to the person that treats their gun like shit? Sure, they are. Um, and if you're that person, maybe that's probably what you should carry. But I. This concept that any of the guns that people routinely carry, routinely jam, is nonsense, or people would not routinely carry them. Any gun that has a heavy following is a reliable gun, or you would not remain loyal to the platform. It's not like, you know, people like me that like 1911s are like, oh, John Browning, let's hail and praise. No, it's we, we like the gun for what it is. So I think that's, that's, a, that's a moot point. I think you should carry what you are comfortable with, what you shoot well, and what you have confidence in. And I am all about, you know, 
let's get some several hundred rounds to that gun before we choose to be confident in it. Because putting two magazines through a gun uh, proves the reliability not. Okay. Now, in spite of what I just said, I think making guns from you know partially finished receivers, building guns completely from scratch legally, and there is a process for doing it, all of that is great. Okay? What you carry, this is my opinion, and it has nothing to do with reliability, dependability, lethality. It has all to do with legal liability. What you carry for personal defense or the gun, I don't care if it's a shotgun, a rifle, whatever it is, that you reach to first if somebody's trying to kick a window in your house should be a factory gun. Now, if you've you know worked on the action, replaced the trip, that's that's all fine, right? Those are things that anybody does with their gun. The ammunition in it should be off the shelf, some sort of personal defense ammunition. I don't even care what kind. And here's why: I am not that worried that if you are attacked in this country, at least at this point in history, at 2018, the end of 2018. If it is, you know, a good shoot, in other words, you were you or someone else's life was at threat and you pull the trigger and you kill and or injure the bad guy, that you will go to jail. I am not very concerned about that. It does happen, but if you're if you if you listen to the Masada Yub interview and you follow that procedure that's in that interview that we did in the past, and I'll put a link in today's show notes, if you do that And if you don't shoot somebody because they took your parking place or something stupid like that, where they were running down the street with a TV set, if you shoot somebody because you need to, where you're going to be able to live the rest of your life feeling that it was a justifiable thing and you're not going to regret it for the rest of your life, you're probably not going to jail in the United States of America. There is a completely different court system, though. The civil court system. And we have seen with famous cases like O.J. Simpson, you can win in legal court even when you're guilty, in my opinion anyway. And the civil court system can still take every dime you have. And I would say even when you're innocent. And this is not just my opinion. This is the opinion of various legal experts, including Mossad, Ayub, who's probably been involved in more defense of justified shootings than anybody I know. I'm not going to say anybody in the country. Anybody I know. You do not provide ammunition to people that would come after you after the shoot. You just don't do it. So you reload your own ammunition. Now we've got an attorney for the family of the deceased who's doing a really good job of playing a victim, even though he was the attacker, by being dead in the ground in a cemetery, explaining how you made the rounds even more lethal. Now, we all know this is bullshit, but do you trust, do you trust a jury of randomly selected people who will be in a civil trial of this size to understand that that's bullshit, to comprehend your countering expert? Do you want to even have that discussion? So, you hand make your gun. Well, you you built you wanted to kill somebody, didn't you? That's why you built your gun from scratch. A, a normal death machine from... You see what I'm saying? You just don't do this. Now, if you want... Now, I am a true libertarian, Right? I believe you should be able to do whatever you want as long as you're not hurting somebody or taking them stuff. If you want to ignore my advice, when I say you just don't do this, it doesn't mean you have to listen to me. I'm giving you my opinion. 
and my opinion is backed by many people who are experts on this topic that are simply saying, if you don't do this, if you ever end up in this, you know, this is a double awful situation. First, you had to take a life, and if you want to do that, I think you have a sickness, so you had to do something you never wanted to do, and even though it was justified, and even though you can live with yourself, there will always be that knowledge in your heart, I am responsible for another man being dead. Trust me, you don't want that. Or, if the guy's crippled and in a wheelchair, you know, eating from a dribble glass for the rest of his life, even if what he was doing was wrong at the time, there's redemption in anybody that's alive, the potential for it anyway, I would say other than like pedophiles, right? Um, and you're going to go live with that. So you're already living with that. And now somebody's trying to destroy your life and take everything you've worked for. Don't put ammunition in their hands. In, in any fight, you should always aim to stack the deck to your side. Because And, and people say, well, that's not fighting fair. I don't want to fight fair because I don't want to fight. If you push me into a fight, whether it's legal, whether it's physical, whether it's lethal, I am not for one second looking to do anything other than end the fight as quickly and efficiently as possible. Because I tried to avoid it. At that point, I've done everything I could to walk away. You didn't let me. So if it's a physical altercation and you get punched in the throat, you see what I'm saying? And you got to take the legal thing the same way. So the last thing I'm going to do to the guy that's forcing me into a fight before I punch him in the throat, is tell him, I'm going to punch you in the throat, or take my knife out, open it up, and give it to him. When you do things like use hand-loaded ammunition, homemade guns, anything out of the norm, and you end up in a lethal force situation with that implement, you are literally pulling your knife out and handing it to the guy that wants to fight you. Now, maybe he's undermatched. Maybe you can still take him with that knife, but you wouldn't do that, would you? So my advice is don't do it here. Next up, I have a question on buying a business for John Pugliano. Hello, TSP listeners. Today, our financial question comes from Martin, and Martin's asking about purchasing a business. Let me give you a few of the details. He mentions that this is a business that's being sold by a family friend, and the business consists of a convenience store, which includes three apartment units, and four spaces for parking an RV, and also includes a dump station for the RV. Now, he doesn't mention where this is located. I can assume this would be out in maybe a rural part of the country, and this is kind of like the small uh, little local convenience store that allows us overnight parking and things. So I can generally get a picture for what this property may be like and the synergies involved. Now, Martin goes on to say that over the past year or so, the owner has put a half-hearted effort into running the business. He's hired a bad employee. They've had some problems where they've had maybe one or more of their licenses revoked where they can't offer one of those services. He doesn't mention what it is, whether it's the dump station or not being able to have RVs park or, or renting out or liquor license. I have no idea what it is. Martin is short on some details here. But in any case, you get the picture. This is probably a business owned maybe by an older gentleman, somebody that's ready to exit the business. He's tired of it. He's just not running it properly. Martin sounds like he's motivated and interested. He sees ways to improve this business. He thinks he can make it viable. And he's interested in purchasing it, but he doesn't have the money outright. The asking price for the business is $279,000. Martin also mentions that this business is sitting on a one-acre property. Now, Martin doesn't mention that the land and the buildings and the business are all included in this price. I'm kind of assuming that from the way he's written this, but it could be possible 
that he's saying that only the business is valued at 279000 and the deal doesn't include the land. If that's the case, then I don't think this is a good deal, and I wouldn't pursue it any further. However, if this is a package deal, which does include everything free and clear for $279,000, then perhaps, Martin, this looks appealing and could be worth pursuing, because Martin also mentions that that $279,000 is 2.8 times the EBITDA valuation from 2017. If you're not familiar, EBITDA is a good term for you to know. It's an acronym and it stands for Earnings Before Interest, Taxes, Depreciation, and Amortization. So essentially, EBITDA means that's the bottom line reported earnings for the business. Now, Martin also mentions that that's for 2017, so that's probably before the current owner got lackadaisical and has been neglecting the business. So the earnings for 2018 are are probably substantially less than that. But just in general, if you divide the 279000 by the 2.8, you come up with roughly ninety-nine dollars or $100,000 that this business would be generating. And so roughly this business is valued at about a three times valuation. That's three times the earnings of the business. In a sense, what you're saying is if you purchase that business today, in three years, it would be paid off. And everything that it produces thereafter and especially any improvements you've made to it to make it produce even more, would be all 100% profit for you going forward in perpetuity, and not only paying you an income, but also growing as a future asset for you. So paying around a three times multiple is, I think, reasonable. Again, Martin is lacking in details. He's not telling us whether this would be run by absentee or by coming in a few hours a day, or if this is going to be Martin's full-time job and Martin will have to quit his existing job. You know, details like that, Martin has left out. And that information would really help making answer the question easier. But I'm assuming that Martin's still going to keep his daytime job, at least initially, and not have to put all of his efforts into running the business. Again, if that's the case, then a three times multiple seems pretty reasonable. The other thing that Martin adds is he estimates that it's going to cost another $35,000 to make improvements, to get back, you know, the license that was lost and some other things like that. I think it's wise to be thinking that way and budgeting for that. But again, Martin has left off the detail of if that's all that's going to be needed. I'm assuming there's also going to be some working capital, and that's probably going to be another, you know, six months of, of operating expenses for the business. Uh, and or living expenses if, in fact, Martin's going to have to quit his existing job to run this. So a couple things here, Martin. I don't have all the details, but I would say on the surface, it doesn't sound like it's a bad deal. I would make sure that I thoroughly went through the owner's 2017 earnings, make sure that they're realistic, see how much he's lost over this past year that he's neglected the business so that you can ensure that this business is salvageable and that there's going to be enough money there for you to start out with the proper cash flow so that you don't get into this and find out, you know, three or four months into it that you're broke and you just can't make the bills because there's not enough cash flow. I'd really want to be looking at what is that cash flow and how much of that do you need to live off of versus how much of that can you use to support and improve the business. Now, as far as financing, you mentioned that you can take about $74,000 as collateral from your home. I would say, you know, if you could use maybe $50,000 of that, that leaves you still with equity in your house and it gives you some capital to work with as a down payment on this business. And then again, because you didn't mention whether or not that asking price included the land and the real estate value of the building, 
if that's the case, then you would probably be able to get a small business loan or you know, some variation of a conventional loan simply based on the one acre of property as well as those, those buildings. I mean, they have to have some kind of a value. So the first thing that I would do would be to get an appraisal of the land in these outbuildings and see if your $50,000 cash can go to purchasing that and then come to the actual owner himself and see if you can make some kind of a deal on owner financing to purchase the remaining sum of the business. But with your $50,000 going as collateral to purchase the real estate part of it and then the $35,000 in improvements you want to make, that would leave about $250,000, $260,000 that you would have to go back and negotiate for owner financing with. I would think you have leeway there because he's obviously neglecting the business. He wants to get rid of it. If he goes through some kind of a business broker, it's going to cost him you know, at least 10% to sell the business, maybe 25% or more. But if he's selling this to you as a family friend, he can be bypassing those brokerage fees. That's more money in his pocket. I personally would look to negotiate some type of a deal where you did some type of a balloon owner financing payment with him where over the first year or two, you paid smaller amounts of money back. And then in those last two or three years of the loan, you paid it off in full. And since he's taking a risk on you, I would also think that it would be worthy to pay an above average interest rate on that money that you're borrowing. That would make the deal good for him because he's not only getting his money out of it, he's going to get some interest and it's a good deal for you because you're picking up a business at around three times earnings. Now, as I mentioned, you left out a lot of details, so I may be missing some things and this could be a horrible deal. But on the surface, what I like about it is that this is generally the kind of business that I recommend to people to go out and find. Find an owner that's either ready to retire or someone that no longer wants the business that they're in. They haven't been taking care of it. They're in a compromised position and they just want to sell it and move on with their life. That's in effect a distressed business and so you're coming in buying it at a reasonable valuation, and you're able to bring your motivation, your passion, and your enthusiasm into it. And so with all your energy and talents and enthusiasm, you can turn it into a very profitable and thriving enterprise. Well, Martin, thanks for the question. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano with Investable Wealth. As always, great advice from John Pugliano. Next up, I have a question for Ben Falk. Let's say you live somewhere cold, very cold, a place where like six months out of the year the air hurts your face, a place Jack won't live. I refuse to live there. Used to. Not even that cold, but I'm not going back to Pennsylvania cold. But let's say you're really cold, central Maine cold, Alaska cold, Canada cold, like way northern provinces, Canada cold, freezing cold. So cold, you wonder, why do I live here? But yet you want plants to grow. What should you plant? Well, Ben Falk has some advice for you on that. Hey, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design with the question about um, being a 15-acre property in the Yukon. Man, um, I would first start just by saying, are you sure you want to live up there? Um, And obviously you probably have some very good reasons for being there. So I won't, uh, we won't get into that, but that's a tough place, man. I've actually been to the Yukon, uh, in the summer and, um, you know, zone one is pretty limited, obviously. So, you know, you're, you're going to have some very specific priorities and it sounds like you're thinking about this very clearly. So, you know, I'll be pretty brief. Um, you're going to want to protect from wind because obviously wind, um, Chill exacerbates the already 
limited climate you have, you're going to, so you want to build up a lot of great windbreaks, you know, use whatever the fastest locally growing trees, you know, you see that are, are successful there. The spruce you mentioned, um, hybrid poplars may or may not do it there. I mean, the list of trees is, you know, you're, you're almost at tundra there. You basically are. So, um, you're just at the margins of, of where in the world, you know, woody plants will even grow. Um, so maybe, you know, white spruce, maybe there's a couple other spruces um, that you can work with and maybe even some willows. But, you know, density is good. So you're going to want to get 15, 20, 30 foot tall windbreaks, depending on how wide of an area you're going to be working with. And then you are going to obviously um, want to develop your microclimates even more intensely, like with hoop houses or greenhouses, depending on your goals, um, I mean, it sounds like you have a bit of a commercial focus, not just homesteading, if it's to produce nutritious food for the local community. Um, so green you know, hoop houses are going to be your friend, you know, double double layer plastic hoop houses. Um, so you can turn your, you know, one month of frost free, probably about there, into three months, maybe four. Um you're going to focus on the hardiest stuff, of course. So the hardiest vegetables, all the, all the coal, C-O-L-E crops, you know, brassicas. Um, I mean, there's a lot of options for, for cold hardy vegetables. And um, then in terms of, you know, fruits, you, you mentioned some interesting fruit. Hascaps, I think, would be at the top of the list. They're about the hardiest fruit in the world. And they hail from Canada and even central to northern Canada. Um, you're going to be pushing their zone for sure, but they're, if anyone can do it up there, it's task caps and potentially some sea berries. Definitely, the Russian varieties would be worth trying. It's certainly at their at their edge for sure. I mean, it may even be below it. Um, you know, you're at the margins of, of human existence in terms of growing anything for sure. I mean, you know, people in in those regions really just foraged. Wild foods and then hunted. You know, there wasn't there wasn't cultivation as far as I understand. Um, so you're gonna have to pull a lot of tricks out of your hat, as I'm mentioning. Um, I would maybe catch rainwater. I mean, chlorinated water is not so great. So think about some other water sources. Drilling. Artesian aquifer is usually a good thing. So I'm not sure why that makes it cost prohibitive. Usually that means. You're going to get water coming out on its own accord if you drill into it, which is a good thing. Um, and organic matter soils are really poor in the subarctic regions of the world. I, I think pretty much everywhere. So, um, and it sounds like that's the case there for sure. Um, so compost, you know, getting any and all organic matter you can. I doubt there's much wood chips available up there. Um, because there's not much biomass to chip up there. But um, if there is, get some, uh, you know, get compost going. Luckily, you're in a soil, in a climate where you can build soil pretty well um, <clears throat> because it's such a long dormant season and, and pretty even moisture, not very non-brittle. Um, I would try to focus on grazing a bit, too, if you can, um, and not just on plants. Um, you know, grass can take a climate like that really well. That said, it's a tough climate for a lot of animals. 
I don't know if people have really, you know, check out play, what Place to Scene Park is doing. That's an amazing project, by the way, and which might be relevant to you, which is relevant to you to some extent. And um, I would also just, you know, learn as much as you can from people who are growing food, food there already. It sounds like there are actually some, and that's that's impressive. Um, so good luck. Um, difficult challenge and uh, a worthy one, though, for sure. Uh, good luck. Just some real quick additions before we move on. I'm going to think uh, indoor growing, heated greenhouses. Um, believe it or not, I'm going to think uh, greenhouse-based, and, and I'm thinking more along the lines here of a building with greenhouse windows, which is much easier to heat and doing aquaponics. Oh, my God, Jack, you think aquaponics? No, hear me out. It is much easier to heat the water than to heat the air. We can use inline heating technologies and things like that. I'm not going to go deep into this. Maybe this would be something like to get maybe several expert council members on to kind of noodle over uh, together in some sort of a uh, an actual council show, like where we're all talking like freewheeling. This might be a good idea. But there's a lot you can do by heating water. Now, you're getting a place where stuff freezes, you know, solid. So you have to really think about the engineering behind it. And I, I admit I have not yet, but I'm talking insulated greenhouses using reflector technology, uh, like the one company I covered in the past does in uh, in Colorado, where basically the windows of the structure face the sun, and everything but the windows is thickly like sip wall insulated, and then there's a cover for the window. And the cover comes down, and the cover has a mirror, and the mirror reflects light into the window. And then at night, the window closes, so the entire structure is insulated. And in this climate, remember, you have times where you get almost 24 hours of daylight. Uh, so that would magnify the effectiveness of things like this. So I, I, I'm thinking, uh, freaking microgreens, man, whatever. Like, um, I, I just don't think you're going to get that much to grow outdoors in this climate. This is a, you know, a, a climate of lichens and mosses uh, that, that actually you know, certain uh, mammals can consume, not you. And this is a climate where man, when man has chosen to live there, has lived mostly on meat and fat for a reason. Uh, don't want to rain on anybody's parade. Ben gave you some good advice, but I, I'd love to see what comes of this but I'm not going to be ashamed of going as much indoors as possible. In fact, spending most of my time indoors. Again, I salute you for your bravery, but I refuse to live in a place where the air hurts my face more than six months out of the year. I am not doing that. Let's go on. And Oh, by the way, though, in, in the summer that does exist, one of the most beautiful places in the world, to be honest. Anyway, uh, which, which is why you know birds can fly and so can we. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, next up, we have some stuff for Doc Bones on ki from Doc Bones on kidney stones. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Doctor Bones of DoomAndBloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author of the 2017 Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook: The Essential Guide for When Medical Help Is Not on the Way plus the co-designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert council is from Jason in Oklahoma, who writes, I'm working on passing some kidney stones. I have meds prescribed by the doctor. Is there anything natural I can get off Amazon to help break them up? 
I really enjoy your segments on the Expert Council. What can I do to promote kidney health and to prevent kidney stones in the future? I drink lots of water and I don't smoke or drink alcohol heavily. Well, only occasionally. I also haven't had a soda in over four years. Good for you. I woke up last night in incredible pain. Boy, I went to the ER and was diagnosed via a CAT scan. I didn't see any cats, though, to have a kidney stone in both kidneys, in both kidneys. Oh, boy. Thanks, Jason from Oklahoma. Jason, I am so sorry that you're dealing with this issue. The kidney is an organ that has a tendency to accumulate crystals that form what we call stones, or in medicalese, nephrolithiasis. Many kidney stones are as small as grains of sand. Some are bigger, though, but any size can cause excruciating pain known as renal colic, and sometimes it can cause even blood in the urine. Your chances of experiencing a kidney stone is about 1 in 20 over your lifetime. Once formed in a kidney, stones usually don't cause symptoms until they begin to move down the tubes, called the ureters, which connect the kidneys to the bladder. When this happens, the stones, if big enough, can block the flow of urine. This can cause swelling of the kidney affected, as well as significant pain. Kidney stones as small as grains of sand may have no problem passing through the ureter to the bladder, but then cause pain as they attempt to pass through the tube that goes from the bladder to the outside. That's called the urethra. Ouch. Once you have a kidney stone, it's likely you're going to get them again at one point or another. Although the symptoms of kidney stones are pretty uniform, there are actually several different types. Calcium stones are the most common. Calcium combines with other substances such as carbonate, phosphate, or oxalate to form a stone. These occur more often in men than in women and usually in those about 20 to 40 years old. There are also cysteine stones, and these form in people who have excess of a substance called cysteine in the urine. It's a condition that tends to run in families. There's also uric acid stones, more common in men than in women. These stones are associated with conditions such as gout and certain types of arthritis, something we've talked about before on this show. Plus, struvite stones are another type. This variety is mostly found in women and can grow quite large, actually. They can cause blockages at any point in the urinary tract. Although not an infection in itself, a history of frequent urinary infections or chronic urinary infections is indeed a risk factor. To diagnose a kidney stone, look for pain that starts suddenly and then comes and goes. Pain is commonly felt on the side of your back, also known as your flank, and lightly pounding on the right or left flank at the level of the lowest rib will cause significant pain in patients with kidney stones that cause inflammation in the kidneys, as well as people with kidney infections. As the stone moves, so will the pain. The discomfort will travel down to lower in the abdomen and could settle in the groin or even the urethral area. You can tell the difference between a kidney stone and an infection by whether there is a fever associated with the pain. Most kidney infections present with fever as well as flank pain. I guess it's possible to have a fever with a kidney stone, but it's much less common. Your treatment goal is to assist the kidney stone to pass through the system quickly. Staying well hydrated is one way to help. Drink at least eight glasses of water per day to produce a large amount of urine. The flow will help the stone move along. Some have used water pills, also called diuretics, or cranberry juice for the same purpose. Pain relievers can help control the pain. Uh, ibuprofen will be the most available treatment of choice for pain relief in survival settings because you can accumulate them in quantity. The stronger pain medications, if you can get them, will be more effective. Although there are drugs available to decrease the frequency of developing certain stones, some dietary changes may prevent the formation of them, especially avoiding foods that have a lot of calcium, such as spinach, rhubarb, beets, 
parsley, sorrel, and chocolate. Also, decreasing dairy intake will restrict the amount of calcium available for stone formation. This will keep them as small as possible and therefore easier to pass. Sodium bicarbonate or sodium citrate increases the alkalinity of the urine, may decrease the likelihood of formation of uric acid stones. Find out what kind of stones you have. That you may have to strain your urine to get the actual sample of the stone so it can be evaluated at the lab if it's available. Other natural substances that may help, again, dependent on what kind of stone you have, are horsetail tea, that's a natural diuretic, pomegranate juice, dandelion root tea, celery tea, and basil tea. As for supplements you get on Amazon, there are a lot of them there. One is Stonebreaker, a combination of a number of herbs and easily available in a number of different brands. I can't vouch for its effectiveness due to the lack of hard data, but hey, you know what? It's worth a shot. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, we're proud to announce that our upcoming book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibiotics in Austere Settings, will be on Amazon by the end of the month. It talks about how to use the antibiotics you can get without prescription in the form of fish and bird meds that I've been writing about for years and could help the survival medic prevent unnecessary deaths from infection in survival scenarios. If you're a member of the preparedness community, you'll want this unique book in your library. And while you're at it, don't forget to check out Nurse Amy's entire line of kits and medical items at store.doomandbloom.net. Remember, the Members Support Brigade gets 10% off anything at our store with their special coupon code. Thanks again. Next up, Nicole Sauce has a piece for us on blogging and when to get narrow and when not to get too narrow. Like, not to be too laser point focused with your blog. Nicole, take it away. Howdy, TSP. Nicole Sauce here with a question from Tori about blogging. Tori asks, I have a question about blogging as a business. How do I narrow the focus of a blog when both potential subjects are subjects I love? Or do I just go with both? One subject has to do with getting kids outdoors and learning life skills and to be self-sufficient. The other is a local blog focusing on family-friendly hikes and other outdoor activities in my area. I blog, but it's not consistent, and I have very few posts because I don't know where to take the blog. I'm not sure if both topics can work as one blog or if I should have two separate blogs or if I should just pick one and not worry about the other. I have no income coming from this blog. I only have possible product ideas for each topic. I also have very little page views and subscribers, but we've all got to start somewhere. And I'm looking for ideas on how to process this and make my decision easier. Thanks for your insight, Tori in Eastern Washington. Ooh boy, you've got some fun hikes out there, by the way. I've, I've spent some time in Eastern Washington. I love that area. They make a few good wines too. So Tori, I think you're overthinking this. Uh, I, the, the key to success with a blog, in my opinion, is consistency and having interesting content and then getting the word out that your blog exists, like getting eyes on your blog. And the way blogs are organized is you write a post about something and then you can put it in a category and you can tag it. Right. So categories I like to view as the top level subjects. And so when I read your, your, um, email, I'm thinking, okay, I'm seeing getting kids outdoors. That's kind of a category. Kids learning life skills. That's kind of a category. Self-sufficiency is a category and family, family friendly hikes in Eastern Washington. 
or other outdoor activities, that's another category. You don't want to have too many categories, but all of those things feed each other. That sounds like one blog to me. It's all about outdoors. It's family-friendly stuff. You've got kids learning skills. I think a lot of people could be really interested in what you're finding as you develop this adventure. So that brings me to my next thing, tags. What are tags for? Tags are like subcategories that cross-reference one thing to another. So you may have canyon as a tag, or you may have, or, you know, actually I'll say hiking versus biking versus uh, canoeing or kayaking, right? You don't want to have too many tags either though. Like I'm literally like helping a customer defrag themselves from having 945 tags, not useful. So categories are the big topics. Tags sort of help you cross-reference things. You want to think about these as ways people may navigate your site and say, oh, I want to see more things like this, click. And so if you have too many options, right, it's hard. And, you know, back in the old days, we used to use tags under the idea that it would help our SEO and we would have these tag clouds and you could see like the bigger words we talk about more than the smaller words. Those still exist, but I just, I haven't seen the users using them as much as they used to. And so I've, I've walked away from having lots of tags and thought of them more like, how does this help the user experience? Anyway, that's a lot of like blog ramble right there. I'd say your next step, Tori, is to start writing. Write once a week. Promise me you will publish something once a week. Reach out to other bloggers. See if you can guest blog on their blogs. Find ways to make it interesting, like maybe shooting some live video through Instagram or just straight up onto YouTube and and get people seeing what you're seeing. Share your pictures. Develop that social following on, you know, whichever social media platform you like to be on and go for it. And from there, if you're planning to transition into some sort of Amazon affiliate recommended products thing, it's really easy to do because once you build that product, your blog, and you get, you get a following, a target audience like following you and interested in what you're doing, your recommendations will start really becoming meaningful to them. And so, you know, with that comes a lot of responsibility. Be careful what you recommend because that can really bite you in the nose. TSP, keep those questions coming. Jack, as always, thanks for what you do. If you guys want to find out more about me, check out my podcast blog at livingfreeintennessee.com. Make it a great week. So the tag thing, like, so I want to make sure we talk about two different types of tags here with blogging. There's what's called meta tags. Uh, Title, description, and then content tags were the big meta tags for search engine optimization back in the day. I'm talking like early 2000s here. And uh, so you would have a meta a keyword tag, right? And so it would be meta content equals keywords, and it would be, you know, like uh, homesteading, uh, self-reliance, whatever was in the article. That's not the tags that Nicole's talking about. She's talking about tagging inside blogs, specifically WordPress, if I tag a post, for instance, expert counsel, and you go to the survival podcast today and you look up this particular episode, you'll see down at the bottom tags, expert counsel. If you click on that, you'll see all the posts that I ever tagged expert counsel. And she's right. People use those a lot less than they did back in the day. And it's crazy the Internet has been along, long, around long enough now that we actually use the phrase back in the day. There is something important to understand about what happens when you use a tag on a blog. You create a page. You create a page. 
that Google will index as a separate page. If you tag everything the same on WordPress, you will make tons of duplicate pages. So that's another reason to narrow down how many tags you use. It's not Instagram. Instagram, you want 20 to 30 hashtags to every post you make, especially when you're new. Uh, Gary Vaynerchuk calls it your currency on Instagram. It doesn't work that way with blogs. Narrow down the amount, uh, and there's creative ways to use it. If you go to tspaz.com where I do all my Amazon reviews, and you see like cooking and lighting and all the stuff and technology that I've categorized, it's all done by tags. So that and, and instead of just using technology for my Amazon reviews, I use technology AZ, right? So that way I could pull out the technology stuff that's specific to Amazon reviews. So there's creative ways to do that. That's kind of apart from the question, but I wanted to add that to the great stuff Nicole had for you. Next, I have my question today, and this is an interesting one. Um, a really, really interesting one. This comes from Chris, and Chris says, Do you have any suggestions to help an introvert become more extroverted? On a show a long time ago, you mentioned you had taught yourself to be an extrovert, and it was a choice you made. I'm on the same path. I'm an introvert. Recently, I've been trying to push myself to be more extroverted. I've been doing it for about a year or two now. I found my progress to be slow. Could use some advice? Any advice would be appreciated. Thanks. I hope to hear your answer on the show. Chris, this is a great question. Let's talk about how my situation is maybe a little different than a lot of people in this same situation. I was introverted because and I have never been you know, professionally diagnosed. I'm convinced as a child uh, I had a condition, and I guess you still do. I guess you never totally get over it. And there are certain mannerisms in me that I see that make this the case from the autism spectrum disorder known as Asperger's syndrome. And Asperger's syndrome is basically a very high-functioning, mild form of autism. And so I figured out eventually in my life that there was something, quote-unquote, wrong with me. And I decided I didn't like that, and I would emulate what other people did. And so my introversion was specific to a condition, not just a personality type. And that may have made it easier or harder. I will say this again. I've said it many times. I am so grateful that in the early 1980s, mid-1980s, no one knew what this was, no one diagnosed it, and no one prescribed some way to fix it. I believe it is through working through it myself that I became the person that I am today. However, there's also, you know, so I kind of had that epiphany going into high school. Uh, high school was also where I moved from Florida to Pennsylvania, and I was kind of a different person in high school than I was in grade school. And I was willing to put myself out there. And when people didn't like me or insulted me, whatever, I just didn't care. Like in grade school, um, I got really crushed by it. And I wondered why people didn't want to be around me or talk to me. And in high school, it wasn't that I was super popular. It was that I, I just didn't give a shit. I didn't care. You don't want to hang out? I don't care. And I found that that attitude, without being aloof about it, like I'm still willing to, to, to hang out or to do stuff or to talk, but if you don't want to, I don't care. Versus, oh, I'm going to be over here and I'm going to hide in a whole hole. That, that, that changed my life a great deal. Then I spent time in the military. I think, and I'm not recommending you go spend time in the military to learn to become more of an extrovert. You'd, you'd be think being told what to do and how to do it and whatever uh, would push you more toward introversion. But the Army and other military branches actually call on you to be extroverted because you learn to follow, but you also learn to lead. And you can't be a timid leader because no one will follow you. And you're put in positions where... Even though you don't have a rank, you're in charge of this thing now. Take charge. Do it. 
And it's amazing what putting yourself in a position without joining the military where you must take charge will do to become more extroverted. My son was very introverted. Now, since he's my stepson, um, it's not genetic at all, but he was far more introverted than I was and more of a personality introvert uh, than I was. It wasn't a, he, he didn't have Asperger's or something like that. He was just a person that naturally his personality type was more introverted. Um, he got his first job as a host at a restaurant. That challenged him. He had to talk to people, but it was pretty simple. You come in, how many you have in your party? Okay, you sit over here. He went to to-go orders, but eventually became a bartender. And, and the people that promoted him to bartender were actually a little bit concerned about his introverted personality. As a bartender, you can't do that. And he's like, when I have to do it, I'll do it. And they gave him a shot. And I think, so maybe some sort of employment that requires you to talk to people, even if it's a part-time side hustle. Uber. Like Uber, generally, you end up talking to like, you know, if you, if you give 20 people a ride at night, you're going to talk to 20 different people. And I have found that talking to people is a lot like anything. It's hard until you do it a few times, and then you don't give a shit anymore, right? I'm just giving this person a ride. If they don't like me and they give me a bad, I'm not, I'm not Ubering to make money. I'm Ubering because I'm trying to be more extroverted so they can go screw themselves, right? Um, and that attitude, I think, is another thing, too, is developing an attitude of, like, I don't care if you don't like me. I, I think that's one of the most important attitudes that anybody can develop, but especially if you're introverted. I don't care if you don't like me. I'm not saying I want you to not like me. I'm not saying I want everybody to hate me. I'm not saying I'm going to go out and try to be people's enemy. What I'm saying is, I'm going to be who I am, and if you don't like me, I don't care. And not just say it, but mean it. There's a big difference there. A lot of people say that. Well, if, if you really meant that, you wouldn't be so introverted. Because one of the biggest reasons we're introverted is we're afraid we'll say something that somebody will take the wrong way. We're afraid that we'll say something that will turn somebody off. We're afraid that somebody say something and someone will look at us and think that you know we're not worthy or make fun of us or mock us. And here's another thing that can help you with this. I think a lot of people that are introverted as adults um, were introverted as children and maybe they didn't get on in school very well. They were the kid that sat alone in lunch. Uh, they were the kid that maybe had one friend if they were lucky. They were the kid that couldn't ask a girl out on a date, but if they did, she laughed at you. Uh, they were the kid that got good grades, so people made fun of you. You know, whatever it is. And I think one of the things that people carry as a psychological scar is that experience from, like, the grade school and, and high school years. This is the real world. All of that is behind you. It no longer applies. People don't act like that in the real world. When you, my, my, my grandson actually was, like, a little bit disturbed uh, when he was at the workshop, parts of the workshop, and, like, my buddy Jake shows up and... Jake has a problem with talking too much. By the way, Jake, if you're listening, you were a pleasure to be around this time. I don't know what you did, um, but you you were a, a great guest at the workshop. Everybody thought so. Um, but Jake had a problem with talking too much, uh, interrupting presenters and things in the past. So we had this ongoing, you know, where we would insult Jake, and he would insult us back. So he said he had his secret weapon, and I said to him as he was walking by, what is it, a stapler for your mouth? And my grandson got really upset. Like, why, why, why is Papa Jack being mean to him? So what you need to understand is in the real world, when you grow the hell up, and men talk like that to each other, you only do that with people you like, right? I mean, if I didn't really like Jake, he wouldn't have been welcome here in the first place. So also understand that some of the banter that went on when you were in school, when that goes on in a group of like going hunting or something like that, that today is just guys being guys. You, you, you screw with the people you like, right? Now, I do have some tangible things that I think maybe you could do. Number one is 
one of the best ways to become more extroverted is just simply to talk to more people. And one of the things that we can do to get us to do that is to go find places to talk about things we love. One of the things people uh, know about me a little bit through the air but don't really know how much, I love animals. And I love creating little ecosystems. So I'm a fish nerd. I like fish. Uh, not just my aquaponics. I like tanks and aquascaping and, and creating you know these planted environments and things. I really like that. If I was alone, if I wasn't married, and if I needed to meet more people, one of the things I would do is look around and find a local fish club. Because if I go there and I want to talk to people about how to breed quarry cats, they're going to be interested in that. Like There's going to be no barrier to conversation. So whatever it is you like, look for groups that discuss that face-to-face, -face, not just on Facebook, right? And go there. Because you're not going to have any problem talking to those people. And the mind doesn't know that it's being tricked off. And so if you start going to a place regularly and talking to people regularly, then the mind says, oh, it's okay. Jim now says, or Chris in your instance, Chris now says it's okay to talk to people. So now we're talking to the lady at the cash register. Now we're talking to the lady behind us in line. Now all of a sudden, you know, we're, if we're single, we're talking to the girl at the bar. Uh, you know, if we're not, we're talking to the guy about a job. And it's just not hard anymore. So go to places where people talk about what you love. Next, get into something like Toastmasters. If you can speak publicly, you can speak one-on-one. -on -one. If you can speak to a group of 20 people, 30 people, um, then it's really easy to talk to one person. When I, when I talk to a large group, I have to try to generalize enough to interest most of the people. If I see one guy kind of nodding off, I can go, screw him. I don't care. You know? But i got to balance that like it's like half the people. Not, how do I... You know, like, and you learn that when you speak publicly. Uh, one of the reasons I think I became so extroverted is years of public speaking being part of my job, working for companies like Fluke Networks and having to talk to, you know, a hundred people about far-end and near-end crosstalk. Kind of boring, but you learn how to use analogies. And we went to a sporting event, and this is attenuation, and the further the person is away from me that I'm trying to talk to, the harder it is for to hear. And when the crowd cheers, there's the crosstalk, and you learn how to do stuff like that. And then all of a sudden talking to one person – And when you're trying to explain something they don't understand it, then it's really easy to figure out a single analogy that works for this one person. So it makes it easier to connect by speaking publicly. Plus, one of the ways to become extroverted is to know that all the people that are involved in a discussion uh, are on your side. And if you get involved with Toastmasters or anything like that, you know that everybody in that room is in the same boat you are. They're all trying to become a better speaker, and they're all on your side. And none of them are going to pick on you or make fun of you unless it's in a, in a positive way, right? So you feel safe. So you come out of your shell. The next is become a modern renaissance man. Um, this is what I think makes TSP successful. I consider myself a modern renaissance man, meaning that I have knowledge in a wide array of topics. A jack of all trades and a master of a few uh, is the way I put it, not a master of none in the words of Benjamin Franklin. So if you learn a little bit about a lot, then it's always easy to have a conversation with somebody about something that they find interesting. So I don't know a, a, a tremendous amount, let's say, about power tools. I know enough to be dangerous and to build the stuff that I want to build. But if a guy's talking about something that has to do with power tools, I can have a conversation about it, and I can basically let him tell me something I didn't know. But at least I understand what he's talking about. So the conversation flows naturally. You know, I know a lot about dogs. So I can have a conversation with somebody about dogs if that's what they're interested in. So become knowledgeable of a, of a wide array 
of topics as possible. And then it allows you, when you're having a conversation with somebody, to pick out a piece of what they're talking about and steer the conversation to that. Very, very helpful in sales, by the way. I've closed deals by having a two-hour conversation with a guy about how much hair a Siberian Husky makes in your house and how you have to vacuum every day. I closed a deal with a guy that no one could close this deal with. And we spent, of the two hours we spent together, we spent an hour and 50 minutes talking about Siberian Huskies. And at the end, I said, can we do this? And he said, yes. And everybody was like, ugh. And as you do more things like that, whether it's closing a deal or simply making a new friend, you become more confident and you come further out of that shell. Okay. The next is you need to understand and believe that you have value. One of the big reasons people are introverted is I have nothing to say. I have nothing to talk about. I have nothing valuable to contribute. Bullshit. Every human being has an amazing story that should be told and told often. You have a story, and you have many stories within that macro story. And you should be comfortable telling your story, telling people about who you are and what you are, and hearing about who they are and what they are. And know this, you have value, but what does that mean? Every other human has value. Which means you can always have a conversation with somebody about their favorite subject, themselves. Who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? Do you have any kids? Do you have any pets? And these questions lead, if you are a Renaissance man, to a level of compatibility. We can now talk about dogs, because we both have dogs and we both like dogs. We can now talk about fish because we both keep fish. We can now talk about fishing because we both go fishing. We can now talk about hunting because we both go hunting. We can talk about football because we both like football. You know, and, and, and I'm not saying to zoom in on those subjects. I'm just saying if you have a couple dozen subjects you have a good general understanding of, the odds that you'll meet somebody that has no interest in any of them is quite small. So understand that you have value and understand that others have value. The next, I don't quote the Bible often but I do when it fits, do not cast your pearls among the swine. When you are trying to be more extroverted and you're trying to reach out to people, you're trying to make connections, and you realize you're dealing with a dumbass or a window looker, licker or someone who's just a rude, obnoxious person, go elsewhere. Just don't bother. If someone is basically a real-world troll instead of an online troll, the troll belongs under the bridge, not in front of you. Go somewhere else. Do not waste your time with people not worthy of your time. Because that goes back to the previous one. Have Understand that you have value. If you have value and you're wasting your time on people who don't appreciate that value, you're going to become more introverted because you're going to feel like I'm valueless. Like I try to help these people. I try to talk to these people. They don't want to talk to me. Trust me, there's people that want to talk to you. Go talk to them. Again, get into groups that value what you value. Get on Meetup. You know, if there isn't a group, put one together. It doesn't have to be elaborate. Pick a coffee house, or an IHOP or something, and just set up a meetup group to talk about something. And if it develops into something, it develops into something. If not, you know, one of the things we used to teach ourselves, always lead with the relationship and never compromise the relationship. At least you met a new friend. Next, in the end, be grateful for who you are. Be grateful for who you are. Like, you don't have to become as extroverted as me. Like, how extroverted do you really need to be? What really makes you happy? You know? But I, I, you know, I, I've talked to people who have been in situations where they have a little social anxiety, they're a little bit introverted, and they make a decision. At this thing, this event, this thing, I'm going to put myself out there. 
and I'm going to talk to people, and I'm going to listen, and I'm going to stay a little bit longer, and I'm going to be part of it. And I'm just going to walk up and say hi to people and ask them who they are and where they came from. And it's always hard at first, but every single person I've ever seen do that, you know what they say? I really had fun. I really had fun. I really learned a lot. That person's really awesome. That person's really cool. You know, there's a saying for men in black that's a real hardcore saying about the world that will probably make it into my second edition of Laws of Life. A person is smart and people are stupid. A person is smart and people are stupid. And I've always said, you know, when you find yourself behaving like a people instead of a person, you're probably doing a dumb thing. But the, the other side of that is most people, most individuals, most persons, if you take the time to speak to them, you'll find out there's, they're a unique, special person with something cool that's part of who they are. Now, you will find the occasional person that you're like, yeah, you know... There's a tree somewhere working night and day converting CO2 into oxygen so that you can breathe. And in the words of Dr. Greg House, you, you owe that tree an apology. You'll meet that person. And just understand you may be meeting that person on their worst day in their worst moment. right? But that's back to not casting your pearls among swine. You will meet people you're not compatible with. Maybe that person really doesn't owe the tree a party or an apology. But you just you and that person just don't mesh. You know, I have a lot of acquaintances. I have a lot of people that I call friends. But I only have a few people that I call true friends that I really, really relate to. And it's only with them that I'm my most extroverted because it's with, only with them that I'm completely and totally my true self. And then it's weird because of this microphone. I have thousands and thousands of thousands of people that I'm my true self with five days a week. You know, it's it, it's a weird thing. So maybe maybe do a podcast. I don't know. You know, um, but I think if you follow kind of that blueprint, and and you 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 anchor it with that final piece, be grateful for who you are and what you are. You'll find yourself becoming as extroverted as you need to be happy. And see, that's what it's really all. Can are you putting yourself out there enough to find the relationships you want to find? the conversations you're looking for, and the success you're after. If you have that, there's no need to force yourself any further. But then you also have to be honest, do you really have those things, or are you saying it to remain comfortable? Because it makes me think of a story, I don't know the source of the story, but the guy was talking about lobsters, and if humans were like lobsters, the lobster would never grow. The lobster gets to a point, it becomes very, very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable. It grows into its shell, to where it can't grow anymore. And it has to shed that shell. Very uncomfortable process. It has to become very vulnerable because the new shell is soft and it takes a while for that new shell to harden up. It has to hide. And then it becomes hard and then it's, it can grow again. And every time this happens, the lobster can grow. And then if humans were lobsters, the lobster wouldn't grow because when we became uncomfortable, we would go to a doctor or a psychologist and they would give us a pill and we would take it and it would restore our comfort and then we wouldn't grow. So growing requires some discomfort and that's okay and that's a good thing. So when you think like, I don't feel good about this or this is difficult or this is hard and you look at it and you say, well, that means I'm doing it wrong. No, it doesn't. It's okay for it to be uncomfortable. Hope that helps. 
Anyway, guys, with that, it's been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast. And I want to remind you here at the end that you can help support this show by joining the Member Support Brigade. All you got to do that is go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more, use the discounts, and get your money back. It's that simple. And, guys, it really helps when you become a member. If you listen to this show and it adds to your life, and you think it adds $50 of value a life to your, to, to, to your life per year, then it's worth joining because that's what I believe. You give first, and then if people see the value, then they reciprocate. But on top of it, then you get your money back. So really consider joining if you haven't. And if you have somebody in your life that you know listens to this show and they're not a member, consider possibly getting them a membership for the coming holidays. Uh, next up, the other way you can support us that is completely painless is do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. You know, I mentioned football in passing today. This is the time of year where I start watching football. Yeah, I know my national anthem and these guys didn't stand and, you know, it's a minority and I, you know, they don't even show that on TV anymore. So it's really not a thing anymore. Um, I watch football because I love football. And not for the politics in or not in football. I watch football because I love football. It's an escape from reality. But we're reaching the time of the year where football gets serious. Like losing actually matters and winning becomes important. And the games are more interesting. And it's cold outside. So it's time for tailgating. Let me tell you, I like to tailgate. I like to cook on my grill in my backyard. I like to bring the nice piping hot food to my living room. I like to sit down on the couch And I like to eat a good meal and have a good drink and hang out with friends and watch football on TV. That's my version of tailgating. And I like to watch the guy that's there with no shirt on, where his nipples could cut glass, and he's got his team painted on him, suffering, and steam coming out of his breath because it's so cold. And I'm sitting there with a bowl of chili and a chicken wing. And that's what I want to talk to you about with T-Spaz today. The King Cooker 12-slot wing grill rack. This thing, uh, in the words of my buddy David, works ridiculously good. I used it to make the jerk chicken legs for everybody for the workshop, and everybody went nuts over those. It's just the way it crisps skin. This thing is awesome. It's 12 bucks, ship-free on Amazon Prime. Again, it's made by a company called King Cooker, K-I-N-G-K-O-O-K-E-R. I give a recipe for my garlic chili chicken wings in this review. You have got to make the oil And, and make these wings. And you've got to do other things with this oil. The the recipe alone is worth taking the time to read this review today. If you do not have one of these things, get one. And I'm going to tell you something else. I love wings. I really do love chicken wings. The way this thing makes drumsticks will change your life just a little bit. Uh, we did drumsticks for the, the workshop because in the end they're more economical and you get a bigger piece of meat and they cook a little bit better to me because of the way they're kind of the meat is distributed on them. You've got to try this thing. You really do, and yes, you can use it in your oven. If you use it in your oven, and it's not a grill, and you have drip, I give you ways to handle it in the review so that you won't make a mess or set your oven on fire. You can do it. My son has one. He cooks in his oven all the time, follows my advice, and he doesn't set his oven on fire. Check it out again, the King Cooker 12-slot leg and wing grill rack, and get it through T-SPAZ, T-S-P-A-Z.com. And remember... If you do your online shopping through tspaz.com, and a lot of online shopping is about to happen, holidays are coming, if you do that, you help the survival podcast and the work we do, no matter what you buy. But check out the King Cooker and do your tailgating at home. It's just more fun. You can drink a few extra beers and not worry about going to jail because they, they we're coming up on the holidays too. It's going to be a lot of drinking going on. 
Okay? Let me remind you of one of Spirico's pearls of wisdom. Do you know what is less expensive than a DUI? The answer is every other option. If you find yourself out having a nice meal and you over-imbibe, take an Uber, get your car tomorrow. But I'm going to tell you the truth. This is the truth about a DUI. If you find the local helicopter service, have a helicopter come pick you up off the roof, off the top of the building, and take you to the Hilton, the Grand Hilton, and get the presidential suite for the night. Have the helicopter come back in the morning and drop you off to get your car to drive home. It will cost you less than a DUI. DUIs destroy lives, and when you drive drunk, you do risk your life and the lives of others. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And tailgating at home is a good way to do it. And when your friends come over, offer them the guest room if they have a few too many. Just a little public service announcement here at the end. That brings us to our song of the day. Song of the day today is called Best Seat in the House by a band called Blackberry Smoke. Never heard of these guys before in my life, before John Adam put them on the playlist. I really like them. This song came out in 2018. As soon as this song started, I'm like, there's a little soul in there. There's a little old rock and roll in there. Not the same thing, but there's kind of on the line of like the Doobie Brothers kind of thing going on there with some modern country and a little bit of pop rock, and it's all together. And it's all very, very good. So I was like, I like this, but what the hell's the song about? So I look it up. What the song is about is about like not having what you want in life, but still knowing that eventually you can get there. Everybody wanting the best seat in the house is kind of the. The concept here. And this also makes me think of one of my laws of life. You know, this is the, I got it coming to me is kind of in this song. And that law of life is you deserve what you want. And when I say that, people have a really hard time with it because entitlement attitude and things like that. I didn't say you deserve somebody to give it to you, though, did I? Because the other part of the law is you just haven't done the work yet. You just haven't done the work yet. And sometimes we think we have because we're working so hard. Well, there's something we call closing. And that's not just a sales term. Closing in a sales term is we get that contract signed. But closing, you know, one of, one of the greatest rushers of all time, one of the greatest rushers in football of all time, I don't think anybody would, would, would debate this. And I'd say the greatest, but one of the greatest is Walter Payton. And Walter Payton said... The reason his stats were so good is he always closed. When he knew he was going down, one more foot, one more inch, one more yard. Even if it's not the difference between a touchdown, a first down, whatever. One more, close. You close that deal. Execution is everything. So a lot of times when you've done all this work, you're, you're an inch from the close. You want the best seat in the house? Don't stop on that last inch and always fight for one more. With that, hope you enjoyed this week. Hope you enjoyed this show. It's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough or even if they don't. What must
the man. 